very early on in the process as we got to meet with members of the search team and members of the elders. And, and even this week it's been affirmed as we've met with congregational leaders and, and staff. The leaders of this congregation love their church. They love their church. And they care very deeply about the decision that needs to be made here. And so uh, that was attractive to us very early on. Uh, in the process. And so just to share with you some of the things that have stood out to us as we've walked through this process. Now what you are hearing, uh, a few weeks ago I had the opportunity to fill the pulpit for Pastor Stan. And we began in the book of John. And I need to prepare you uh, for something because as, as we stepped away from our position at Wesley in March, I had a few weeks uh, in between before I started subbing full-time at Solanco High School. And during those few weeks, I put a sermon series together through the book of John. So what you heard uh, a few weeks ago when I was filling in for Pastor Stan was sermon one of 108 out of the book of John. So uh, we, we are getting a head start. So that's exciting. And today you'll hear sermon number two and Next week you'll hear sermon number three. I love preaching through books of the Bible and, and we're going to go right through uh, the book of John. But as we approach the book of John, we always want to study and we always want to read the Bible in light of the purpose uh, that the author intended for us to see in it. And so John is, is very clear in his purpose for writing in the book of John. He says in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Isn't it interesting? As we read John, as we come to John, we come understanding that the purpose for his writing is that we would know Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that we would believe and have life in his name. And so that indeed is the title of this series through the book. As you get to know me and as I get to know you a little bit better every week, isn't it interesting how we respond differently to people we know than people we don't know? You know, and when we're around people we're, we know we're very comfortable with them, we're, we're almost relaxed and casual. But as we get to know people, as we're new to people and people are new to our in, in our lives, sometimes we're a little bit more careful and cautious uh, and reserved. And so what we're going to find this morning as we go into the book of John and as we open up God's Word is that people respond to the unconquerable light of Christ in different ways. And so this morning, that is our goal. Today, our goal is to explore the ways in which the world responds to the unconquerable light of Jesus. And we're going to do that today by looking at the book of John chapter 1, verses 6 to 13. And before we open up his word and dive in together, let's bow for a moment of prayer. Father God, we are indeed so thankful for your word, for its power, for its ability to change our hearts and redirect our hearts and to change our minds and transform our thinking. And so today, Father, as a family of God, we come together in anticipation, knowing that you have truth for us that you want us to hear that will be useful for us as we move beyond the walls of this place this week. It's in Jesus' name we pray. 
Amen. So as we open the book of John, and as we go into John chapter 1, in the first few verses here as we, as we read it, there's a question that presents itself, and the question is this. Why is John the Baptist important? Why is he important? This is John chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. And if you remember the first five verses, John has just introduced us to this wonderful light, this word who is Jesus. And now we open in John 1, verse 6. And I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all may believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so almost abruptly, almost as as quickly as we're introduced to the person of Jesus as the Word in the beginning of John, John chapter 1, John brings us to this next character who happens to be John the Baptist. And so and we wonder, why is this so soon? Why was John the Baptist so important? We have Jesus, the Word, as, as, the, as, as the Messiah sent from God, and we have His earthly herald sent to proclaim and point us and direct us to him. And so there are a number of reasons we find that John is important. One of them is this. John the Baptist represented the best of the Old Testament. The best of the Old. The ruling priest of the day, many of the ruling priests had been appointed by a man named Herod, who was in a place of leadership by the Roman government. Herod was put in place by Rome. And so the, many of the priests, the high priests that were in place, and you know their name, names Caiaphas, some of them are familiar to you. These men were men who were in the back pocket of the Roman government. They really didn't have a vested interest in doing things the way that the Bible in the book of Leviticus had explained that they were to be doing them. These priests, they would have wore elegant garb and they would have looked very different than the common people that were walking around at the time. They would have pranced around and, 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 and maybe even, you know, highfalutin chest out in their nice robes and they would have eaten differently and, and they would have been men of great political influence within their jurisdiction. John was not like one of these priests. If you remember, when the people came to John the Baptist, when the high priest came to, to inquire of him, they didn't even know who he was. Tell us who you are. Who are you? you know, John, he, he dressed differently in a, in a little bit of an unusual manner, the Bible tells us. He ate common food. He lived with the people that he served. Now, how ironic, right? It, it, it should not surprise us that the forerunner of the Messiah, John, that in, in some ways he would, uh, like Jesus, not consider his power and his position and the lifestyle that followed that, but being a priest, he operated in humility and out of love, he ministered alongside with the people he served. And so John served as this kind of bridge from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And then one of the amazing truths about John the Baptist that we find in the book of Luke is that he was a priest of the Levitical order from the line of Aaron. So he was, uh, if you could put anybody up there that was any more priestly than John, you probably couldn't find a person. Uh, a priest from, from the Levitical order, 
from the line of Aaron. Now here is one of the amazing truths about what the Levitical priests did. The Levitical priests, they were men who had people who studied under them, who, who followed them, who learned from them. But one of the unique jobs that the Levitical priests had is that they would inspect the Passover lamb to make sure that it met the required specifications for sacrifice. So let me say that again. As a priest of the Levitical order, John the Baptist, one of his jobs was to inspect the Passover lamb to make sure that it met the qualifications for sacrifice. So how incredible, how amazing, how life-changing when John looked and said to the people about Jesus, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this would have been a shocking statement, an astounding statement. You think about 400 years of anticipation. The waiting, the people yearning, watching, looking, longing for a Messiah, longing for the hope of the nation to be presented to them. And in, in, in one line, in one bold and succinct line, John the Baptist pulls all of that together. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist would be the one who would point the people of Israel in the direction of the one true Messiah, the great light from God, the giver of life, the creator of the world, Jesus. God used John the Baptist to validate the reality concerning the identity of Jesus. Now, John's work and what he did while he was on earth serves as an example for all of us. It's simply pointing people to the light of Christ. Light brings clarity, uh, brings peace, it brings joy. And, and we, we can't give people the light. We, we can't reveal the light to them. Only Jesus does that. But we can give people the hope that there is a powerful, unconquerable, steady, and faithful light that's guiding our lives and directing our lives. And their lives, too, might be changed by the power of this light. We should be encouraged by John's testimony concerning the light that God might use our testimony and our lives as a way to draw others to himself. And there's some application here for us as well. And that is this. Our faith in Jesus is not a private matter. Our witness is not private. It is a public witness. It is a public testimony. Jesus was a public Messiah that was sent into the world. Our faith should inform our decisions. It should guide our thoughts. It should direct our actions. And unfortunately, today there's a movement, and I'm sure many of you have heard it and, and maybe even have been influenced in our society that says your faith is a private matter for behind the closed doors of your home. In fact, I just not too many weeks ago got done reading a really, really good book on leadership. And I thought so much of what the author had to say in the book was really, really powerful. 
But there was one thing that he said that really bugged me. And he talked about being a man of faith, but how his faith is very private to him. And he keeps it to himself. And I just thought, that is not the call. That's not the example. That's not the testimony of Jesus, nor is it the testimony of John the Baptist. When we privatize our faith and we keep it to ourselves, not for the public sphere, we're showing the world that what we believe isn't actually important enough to us to inform the decisions that affect our daily lives. That's, that's not the way we're to be living. It's a public testimony. It's a public faith. And, and I, I would say this of, 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 of any church, what happens beyond the walls of this building on a Sunday morning is more telling about the reality of what is happening within the walls than anything else. I'll say that again. What, what we do and what happens outside of the walls of this building when we leave here on a Sunday morning is more telling of what is taking place inside of these walls than perhaps anything else. John was out there doing the work. His, his beliefs informed the decisions that guided his life's words and his life's actions. And so the gospel writer of John is, is pulling together some very wonderful ideas in the first eight verses of John chapter 1. And I love it. He's, he's beautifully woven together for us three different ways that God uses to draw men unto himself. So we have the witness of the living word in Jesus. We have the witness of the written word in his gospel, the written word of God. And now we have in John the Baptist the witness of the spoken word and the testimony, all working together again towards the purpose that you might believe and have life in his name. Now we must be careful that we don't overstate the identity of John. Because while John was a very important figure in a very important light, the writer of the gospel, the, the, the disciple John, wants us to be aware of something. And if you take your eyes back down to John chapter 1 and we look at verse 9 together, he says this, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, as we understand this, we understand that when light comes into something, division is going to occur. When light comes into something, division is going to occur. And Jesus talked a little bit about this. Uh, he came to, to bring a sword and that his ministry would cause a division. And so there is a division here that we're going to see in the next part of this passage. We have to go back and remember the verdict. And the verdict is this. In John chapter 3, verse 19, the verdict is that people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. And so Jesus was coming and, and there was going to be a division. We, we see it between the sheep and the goats, between those who would believe and those who wouldn't believe. And we're going to find it even in the second half of our passage today. And so in the second half of our passage, we're going to be confronted with the reality of this division, and we're going to see the different ways that people would respond to Jesus. This is verses 10 and 11 in John chapter 1. Or John chapter 1. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not 
receive him. Now verses 10 and 11 present us with two different responses to the word that are responses in unbelief. And the first response is this, disregard or apathy. Romans chapter 1 verse 20 says this, For His invisible attributes, speaking of God, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that we are without excuse. God has revealed Himself in a very real way to man. But yet there are some who, whether it's uh, due to apathy or just blatant disregard, will not recognize Him. Now, I want you to imagine with me this scenario. Imagine tonight you went home after this day. It looks like it's going to be a beautiful day. And and you went to bed. And you went to bed in in your home, in your own bed. But when you woke up, you woke up in 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 the top floor of a glorious mansion. And some of you are like, oh, that would be nice, you know. Some of you are like, I wouldn't want to clean all that. So no, I don't, I don't really, no, it doesn't really appeal to me. But just go along with me here for a second. You wake up and you're on the top floor of this beautiful mansion. And you get up out of bed and you walk to the window and as far as you can see is just the beautiful creation and God's design, green grass mountains. And as you look around your room, you notice artwork all over the walls, beautiful pieces of art. Big paintings, everything fitting together. The painting of the room matches the art. And as you go through the mansion and walk out of your room, you recognize that everything is tied together somehow. And and, and you walk down the stairs from floor to floor, and you see more beauty within, within this beautiful home that you woke up in. But now imagine that seeing all of that and visualizing all of that, you just walk out. And some of you are thinking, well, no. We, we, what do we, want? we want to find out who's responsible for all of this beauty. Who, who did this? Who, who tied this all together? Who united all of these pieces to make this wonderful beauty? There wouldn't hopefully be disregard and apathy when you saw how everything worked together so majestically within the home. Yet we find so often that that is one of the ways that the world will respond to Jesus in disregard or apathy. Not recognizing that we live in this beautiful world. You just look out the window today and it's green and the sun is shining and it's just gorgeous. And somebody, God, has pulled all of the things together within his creation to make them work exactly the way that he desires them to. And there's another way that folks respond sometimes in unbelief to the person of Jesus. And that is rejection. In verse 11 it says, He came to His own people and they did not receive Him. You know, it's interesting. Peter confronted the religious leaders about this in the book of Acts. And this is a a very uh, forthright, bold uh, statement. Right in the book of Acts, if you you have your Bibles and want to flip over to Acts 4, it will be on the screen. Watch what happens here. This is Peter talking to the religious leaders, the high priests of the day. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power, by what name did you do this? And remember these disciples, they had healed 
a man who had been crippled. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning the good deed we had done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by, his, by him this man is standing before you. Well, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected, rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And another response in unbelief to the person of Jesus is rejection. And Jesus' own people rejected him. Now, I want you to think about that. Your own family. The own people he came to save rejected him. It takes me back uh, to the story of Joseph. Betrayed by his own brothers. By his own blood. Sold into slavery. What a terrible feeling. All of us at some point in our life have experienced this rejection. Maybe, and, and maybe not as, as, as serious of this kind of rejection, but all of us at one point or another have experienced it. And isn't it comforting to know that we have a Messiah, we serve a Savior who can relate to those feelings when we feel them. We're not, they're not foreign to Him. He was rejected by the very people He came to save. And m many people in the world today will reject him. And it would be very easy for us to let these negative feelings discourage us and, and, and to cause us to, to know, oh man, is, is there any hope? You know, and, and yet our concern should not be wrapped up in the way that people receive the testimony of Jesus. When we live or when we speak to people about Christ, our concern is simply to live compelled by the nature of love that He has given to us to make Jesus known to others. And Jesus does not reveal Himself in a way leading to salvation to all people. And that's something that's difficult for us to understand, but it's affirmed Jesus' disciple Judas, not the Iscariot, Ask him in John 14, 22, he said, Jesus, how is it that you're going to reveal yourself to us, but not to the whole world? And so not all will come to a saving knowledge of Christ. Some will disregard him, some will have apathy towards him, and some will blatantly reject him. But thankfully, there's a third response that people have when confronted with the unconquerable light of Jesus. And that third response is found in verses 12 and 13 of our passage today. And that is belief in Jesus. This is verse 12 of chapter 1. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God. And as I was studying this passage and preparing this message a question came to mind, and I remember writing it down because it may seem like a question that's so simple, yet maybe so often in the church we overlook it. And the question was this, well, how do we become a child of God? 
And I think in our minds sometimes right away we want to go to all the things that we might have to do. Uh, maybe actions, maybe saying a prayer or, or, or attending church or whatever it might be. But John chapter 1 paints a different picture. But to all who did receive Him, Jesus gave them the right to become children of God. We do not become children of God on our own right. A child does not choose his father. A child does not choose his father. I'm coming to understand this as our family walks through the process of international adoption. This is becoming very real to me as we are beginning to walk towards uh, the, the phase of adopting two uh, young boys into our home. And, and, and to understand what our adoption into the family of God meant. That Jesus gives us the right. Our sonship is granted to us by Jesus. We don't become a child of God on our own efforts. Jesus grants us that right. And a follow-up question might be then, for those of us in this room, well then, how do we know that we belong to God? How do we know? If, if Jesus grants us the right to become a child of God, if that's granted to us by, by Jesus, then how do we know that we belong to God? I had uh, a mentor in my life ask me that question one time. He said, how do you know you belong to Jesus? And again, as we sit here today, we think, well, that's a pretty simple question, and you're a pastor. You should be able to... To, to spit that right out. But I remember sitting there perplexed and thinking, well, how do I know? And, and I'm thinking, uh, how do I know that I'm truly a child? And he looked at me and he said, it's very simple. He said, when you pray, how do you begin your prayer? And again, I'm, I'm wrestling, I'm fighting, I'm like, and I'm thinking when I pray, I Father. Father. And he said, there you go. He said, that's how you know you belong, because you call him Father. We call on the name of the Lord, and we call him Father. Our sonship, again, is granted to us. Someone must make us worthy. We cannot make ourselves worthy. We are not worthy in and of ourselves to be part of the king's family. Jesus calls us, and, it, and we're adopted into that family. Now, there's another part of this verse in verse 13 before we uh, get too full of ourselves and think that some miraculous act of belief on our part has merited this adoption. John wants to correct that thinking very early in his gospel. And this is John chapter 1, verse 13. It says this, Children who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So, so as children, as children of God in God's family, we are born differently than other children. We're born differently than other children. And John had to write this because there were a lot of people that believed just because they were an Israelite or just because they were Jewish from the line of Abraham that they were somehow granted this, that it was owed to them. There were some who believed that their human effort might merit it or might earn it for them. And there were others who believed that they could rely on prayers or work of other people in their lives to accomplish it for them. But, but what John is saying here is we're not born in, into it physically. 
It doesn't come through human effort, and we can't rely on what others have done for us. But we are born of God. Now, there's a fabulous supporting scripture with this. It's in 1 John chapter 5. And this is just the first verse of chapter 5. It says this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. And so John Stott, in his work, Letters of John, uh, says on this verse, and, and this is a really good quote about this verse. He says this, quote, The combination of the present tense word believes and the perfect tense form of has been born is important because it clearly shows us that believing is the consequence, not the cause, of the new birth. Our present continuing activity of believing is the result and therefore the evidence of our past experience of new birth by which we became and remain God's children. End quote. And so the reality is this. If you and I sit here together today and we sit here believing, we are believing because we have been born of God. We are believing because we've been born of God. And, and this was the birth that Nicodemus so desperately wanted to understand. And we won't dive too deeply into that. That's like sermon 25 or 30 down the road here. But we will get to John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus and he wants to know, what must I do to be born again? And what does he do? He goes right to the physical. He wants to accomplish it. Well, must I go into my mother's womb a second time? And what does Jesus do? He corrects him. It's, 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 it's like the wind, Nicodemus. You don't know where it comes from or where it is going. And so it's not the physical. It's not what we do, but it's what he does and what he has done for us. God regenerates us. He brings us from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's not earned by our actions. When God gives birth to us, Jesus gives us the right to be a son of God. It's Jesus who declares our righteousness. It's Jesus who advocates for our innocence before God. It's Jesus who um, mediates before God on our behalf. Jesus gives us a new nature of love. Jesus empowers us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. Jesus prepares the good works for us to do in advance, Ephesians chapter 2. And then he moves us towards accomplishing them. It's all about Jesus. Charles Spurgeon once said, if Jesus is anything, he must be everything. Everything. Whatever good that comes from our lives, whatever credit someone might want to give to us for some beautiful or generous thing that we've done or something that we've accomplished, it all must point to Jesus. That's the testimony of John. And that should be the reality of our lives. Because Jesus has been gracious to us, we can be gracious to others. Because Jesus has shown us great mercy, we can love others with the same compassion. Because He loved us when we were His enemies, we should also love our enemies and be quick to forgive. Because Jesus has been patient with us, we should be patient with others. 
not out of duty or obligation or responsibility, but out of love. Let all we do be motivated by love. And here within lies a challenge for us today. Living out of this abundant thankfulness and the joy that Jesus produces in our life for how he has transformed us. And we should endeavor to live our lives as a light to others by giving all the credit, all the glory, all of the honor, and attributing all the power for anything good in our lives to the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So that like John the Baptist, we might do the same thing. Our lives may do the same thing and accomplish the same thing that John the Baptist's life accomplished. That the actions of our lives, the words of our mouths, both our behaviors and our beliefs might boldly proclaim and God might use them to direct others to the true Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now today, it's exciting because we have some immediate application of this truth before us this morning in the remembrance of what Jesus has done for us. And this is truly a celebration. This is truly something that as a congregation, we come together and, and, and we celebrate with, with reverent joy and thankfulness. And communion for us as a body is an opportunity to remember the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf and to celebrate our adoption as sons and daughters into his family. And so Pastor Davis is going to come forward this morning to administer the elements. And this morning as a congregation, we're going to apply that joy and that thankfulness and that remembrance for what Jesus has done in our life by joining in communion together. Pastor Davis. Thank you. As you go today, and as you leave this place, might you go knowing that God can use your life as a light to draw other people to himself. Have a wonderful afternoon. Thanks for coming. See you next time.